here, it's time. The preseason is officially underway in the NFL, and that means it's time for football. The NCAA instituted a new rule for basketball agents, and LeBron and others think it's racist. They even gave it a name, the Rich Paul Rule. We'll talk about it. Speaking of LeBron, he's organizing a pre-training camp, training camp to build chemistry with his teammates. And speaking of chemistry, Kevin Durant barely talked to his teammates last season in Golden State. And in the Bruce Breakdown, I'll tell you why Ed Reed is the greatest safety who ever played. All that and more. Sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 32 of The Format. Take a deep breath. You smell that? It's the smell of football. The NFL preseason is off and running, and even though it's not the best quality football, it's finally football again. So let's get to it. The most talked about team this offseason couldn't have gotten off to a better start. Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns won their preseason opener, and they did it pretty easily. But really, the attention grabber was the first series with Baker Mayfield and the Browns offense which, by the way, was missing Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. But what grabbed the attention is that they were running a hurry-up offense and they went 89 yards in their opening drive in less than two minutes. Baker was looking sharp. He completed five or six throws and had 21-yard touchdown pass to start the scoring. Afterwards, they had a pretty interesting celebration. Baker ran down there because you know he's a guy who loves to celebrate with his teammates. Got on one knee and uh, pantomimed taking pictures while the uh, receiver, Rashard Higgins, pantomimed walking the catwalk. So that was a pretty cool little celebration thing they did. Uh, Baker Mayfield, he must have thought he was back at Oklahoma the way he ran that drive. It's pretty cool. Um, some things I've heard, though, is that, uh, you know, some of the members of the media and, and who are NFL analysts, etc., former players, they, they thought it was kind of weird that Cleveland ran a hurry-up you know, two-minute, no-huddle, whatever you want to call it, offense right out of the gate in the first preseason game. And some people don't like that. They say it's abnormal, whatever. I'm saying if that's how you practice and you want to play fast, you want to play aggressive, the old thing is play like you practice. So go out there and do it. Um, Cleveland, I'm pretty sure they know there's a big target on their backs. They know there's been a lot of hype all preseason, a lot of talk about them, a lot of expectations just based on the the talent that they've managed to gather and put together one of the best offensive rosters in the league on paper. In terms of the skill positions, they are arguably the best team in the league on paper. So they know they have a lot to live up to and there's a lot of attention going to be on them. So, hey, why not come out and and do it? Come out and uh, play like you practice and and see what you're going to get. Now, that said, we've seen a lot of teams go undefeated in the preseason and then go on to have sorry regular seasons. So, how much does the preseason really mean when a lot of times you're playing against guys, especially in the first game, who won't make an NFL roster 
you're seeing the most vanilla, bland defenses. You're not really getting too much. But at the same time, man, if, if you're the Browns, you got to go out there and do what you got to do. You can't worry about all the other ancillary things. So, hey, I'm, I'm with it. Go out there and do it. On the flip side in this game, though, uh, the Redskins' first-round pick from Ohio State, Dwayne Haskins, he didn't have a great night. He was uh, only 8-14 for 117 yards, which on his face doesn't sound terrible, but he had two bad interceptions where he pretty much threw it in the double coverage both times. So he clearly needs work, and he's not ready to step right in, but that wasn't really the uh, assessment of him coming out anyway that he would be the day one starter. He's got all the physical tools, and, and he can be pretty good based on what we saw at Ohio State and instances of him shredding some really outstanding defenses that had a lot of pros on them. But in the NFL, you know, everybody is good. Everybody is fast. Everybody could play. So we'll see. Again, he's got a lot of development to do. Um, game reps will definitely help, but, but time is going to tell how good he's going to be and how fast he can get there. With that, we say welcome to the NFL, young man. Going over to New York, uh, obviously we had the preseason battle of the Big Apple and two high-profile young quarterbacks. He's got a series of work, and that's Sam Darnold for the Jets and uh, number six overall pick for the Giants, Daniel Jones, who coincidentally uh, fans were pretty upset, and so was the New York media, when the Giants drafted him over Dwayne Haskins. Um, I think if you know anything about the Mannings, uh, they both played for Duke football head coach David Cutcliffe, who also coached, guess who? Daniel Jones at Duke so I'm sure that had something to do with it and as well maybe there could have been the assessment that Daniel Jones is not ready quite just yet and so that'll give Eli Manning who's basically a made man in New York a little more time before he's forced off the field um anyway Sam Donald in his second season he looked pretty good which you know he should he's got a year under his belt um the only thing you can say is he's in a new offense, but, you know, he's seen a lot of NFL defenses. He should have by now adjusted to NFL speed. Uh, he was four for five for 68 yards and a touchdown on his only drive of the night. So you couldn't ask for too much more than that. Uh, Le'Veon Bell didn't play, but still Donald looked good. Um, and again, pretty much as expected for a high draft pick. And now he's got a year under his belt in the NFL. For the Giants, though, the question is, you know, what are we going to see from Daniel Jones? This is a guy who's tabbed to be the eventual successor to Eli Manning. And what are we going to see? You know, one of the New York uh, papers back pages when uh, the Giants drafted him, the next day it said Blues Clueless, you know, basically showing that they had no interest in uh, Daniel Jones as, you know, the, the heir apparent or the future QB of the franchise. Um, ironically enough, after, you know, some good play last night, he got some very good uh, back page pub uh, following up the next morning. One of them said thunder, you know, kind of things like that. So it's just amazing how you go from basically uh, unwanted, uh, no one has anything good to say about you to, you know, them over the top. And of course, a function of that is New York media. New York media tends to sensationalize. <laughs> they pretty much have since the 1840s, but I'm not going to give you a journalism history lesson there. But anyway, so uh, Daniel Jones, he, he, he did pretty well. He was 5-for-5 five five on his drive, had 67 yards and a pretty good touchdown throw. Now, I saw and heard uh, NFL analysts say that, you know, if that's regular season, 
again, starters at the safety and uh, corner positions that the throw would have been picked, but it's still a good confidence builder in your first NFL drive to be perfect, not throw an incompletion, go down the field, and then throw a touchdown pass. So no one's putting him in the canton, and uh, we'll see in game three, which is generally the NFL's dress rehearsal, if he gets some reps and uh, he'll be playing against real NFL starters and real NFL defensive play calling, we'll see kind of more what he's made of. Because again, uh, barring Eli getting injured and he's been remarkably healthy throughout his career, we don't expect Daniel Jones to see a lot of playing time this season. The third game I'll touch on, and I'm, I'm not really going to go down the entire list of uh, games played, but this is one that was interesting to me was Baltimore Ravens versus Jacksonville Jaguars. Number one, I'm a Ravens fan. Number two, I live in Jacksonville. So that was uh, interesting. And obviously Nick Foles, which is the newest shiny toy for the Jags. He didn't play. And uh, Gardner Minshew, the rookie out of Washington State, and Mike Leach's air raid offense. He got a lot of time. And I tell you what, it's going to be a real adjustment to the NFL for him as a player Number one, coming out of the Pac-12, which for the most part has never been a, a conference known for great defensive play. And number two, uh, coming out of a, a scheme, the air raid scheme with Mike Leach, which resembles very little in terms of NFL offense and NFL passing game. So it's going to be a big adjustment for him. But um, uh, he did okay, but he was really nothing special at all. He was 7 of 14 passing. 50%, which, you know, against, like I said, guys that aren't even, for the most part, going to be in the league, that shows that he's got a long way to learn in terms of diagnosing what he's seeing defensively and delivering the ball. And he only had 46 yards passing on those seven attempts. So really, again, nothing special, uh, very pedestrian day. No one's expecting him to be the starter. Hopefully, he will be the backup and, you know, he is playing for that. So in the event Nick Foles can't go during the season for whatever reason, he can step in and at least be a, a viable candidate to, you know, hold down the fort until Foles gets back. Now, no one is comparing the weapons in Jacksonville to Cleveland, Kansas City, or Rams, but still, 3.3 yards per. I mean, that's just terrible no matter what level you're on. That's beyond thinking and dunking. We don't even know what to call that. That's terrible. But for me in this game, the bigger story was seeing Lamar Jackson in his first action in year two. Everybody knows the guy's a lights-out athlete. He's a former Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, he's an extremely fast and elusive runner when he gets into the open field. And those athletic gifts allowed him to really make things difficult on defenses last year in terms of augmenting the run game from the quarterback position. So, you know, that's great. But what everyone is looking for this year is to see the improvement in the passing game. Even though it wasn't against real defenses, again, just game one in the preseason, one drive. He did go four of six for 59 yards and a touchdown with no picks. So that on its face is pretty good. But what was another really good thing for me um, was you could see the emphasis was on him throwing the ball from the pocket. He did not take off and run once. He had one play where they kind of did a bootleg to kind of move the pocket roll him out, and uh, then he hit his receiver in stride, going downfield for a nice pickup. But for the most part, he stood in there, he threw the football, and that's more and more of where Lamar needs to continue to improve. Stand in the pocket, deliver the ball, see the defenses, diagnose what's happening, and, and make the right read and the right throw. And obviously, there's still a lot of work to be done, and, and there's a long way to go, but he looked pretty good as compared to last season as a rookie. 
And he's been adamant, you know, since the draft process that he is a quarterback. He's not going to work out as a receiver. He's not going to be a tailback or a DB or anything like that, and that he can throw it. And we saw glimpses of that at uh, Louisville during his Heisman campaign and even the following season, but never enough to say this guy can be an elite NFL passer. But if he puts in the work and he wants to do it, and the Ravens have made efforts to kind of augment his weaponry, then... We'll see what he can turn into, and uh, who knows if this could be a dangerous team. Obviously, the AFC North is always a tough division, always has strong defenses, and now you have Cleveland's offense bolstered, like I said, to you know one of the best skill position groups in the league. Um, you have a Hall of Fame quarterback up in rival Pittsburgh with Big Ben, and uh, they always have a way of finding and developing uh, wide receivers, and of course, they can run the football with James Conner. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the Ravens do. It's going to be interesting to see what Lamar Jackson can do. So, you know, for the first game, I like it. I like what I saw, but um, we're going to continue to watch and kind of analyze and see what he develops into. And, of course, into the regular season, when it really gets tricky, we'll find out. On another note, serious question. What the hell is wrong with Antonio Brown? What is wrong with Antonio Brown? I'm seriously starting to wonder. Okay, first the guy forces his way out of Pittsburgh. Okay, um, you're not in the NBA, you're in the NFL, but it worked. Forces his way out of Pittsburgh after, despite being the most productive receiver in the league on multiple statistical categories since 2010, you ended up being such a nuisance and, and a locker room problem. And it wasn't all Antonio Brown, no question. Big Ben had his parts in that and whoever else, whatever else. But he was a locker room problem there. He forced his way out of Pittsburgh and gets traded to Oakland, to the Raiders. Okay, he goes to the Raiders. The Raiders say, let's do it. You've earned it, and we're looking forward to what you can do. They give him a new big contract. They give him the new money that he wanted. All right, fantastic. Then he manages to get himself severe frostbite on his feet. Because he didn't properly cover them going into a cryogenics chamber. Um, okay, so this has severely limited his practice time and how hard he can go when he does get on the field. Okay, but we know one thing about Antonio Brown. For all the other antics, etc., this dude works and this dude produces. So, you know, when he gets back out there, we're sure that he's going to give it everything he's got. But it's always something with this dude. But here goes the next thing. He's apparently now having a meltdown because he can't wear the helmet he wants? What? ESPN's Adam Schefter reported Friday afternoon that he told the Raiders that he will not play football again unless he's allowed to wear the helmet that is prohibited from use, is no longer certified, and won't be again because it's more than 10 years old. He has filed a grievance that was heard by an independent neutral arbitrator on Friday per league source one appointed by the NFLPA and the NFL. Both the union and the league were represented and Brown participated by phone. The arbitrator has not ruled on the grievance, though a decision could come next week. Now, from what else I've read and heard, apparently his issue is the new hel- the newer helmet designs, which, by the way, are made to increase player safety. That's why the old ones uh, can't be recertified. They're more than 10 years old and they don't pass the new test for, you know, collisions and protections, etc. But apparently his issue is the new helmet designs, to some degree, limit his vision when he's catching the football. That's what I'm gathering. So I get it as a receiver that would be problematic for you, a guy who has 
literally made a living off of being a fantastic catcher of the football, but you got to find a way to deal with it like every other receiver in the league does. This is ridiculous. This is the type of nonsense that you expect from NBA players who have much more freedom, much more individuality, and frankly, much more power. But you don't at all expect this stuff in the NFL where the general premise is fall in line or pay the price. So I'll take some time to get into a couple of NBA stories now, even though it seems like basketball has finally calmed down for the summer, right? Little things here and there are still going on, but the major news is finally giving way to the NFL. And uh, But of course, there's still things going on. Anyway, number one, LeBron James is apparently organizing pre-camp workouts for his teammates to build chemistry before the season. So, uh, where was that last season? Did he not care? Or did he just say, screw it, because he didn't have another superstar and he knew he'd get a pass if things didn't go the way they wanted to? Or because he didn't like the roster as it was constructed at that time? Did he, did he not need chemistry then? Oh, but now he's got Anthony Davis and he's got a better roster. So he says, hey, we need team chemistry now. I need to make sure that I play the leadership role, right? Yeah, I'm not buying it, but okay. Number two, the NCAA's new rule regarding agents for college athletes is the so-called Rich Paul Rule. For anyone who's listening that's unacquainted, Rich Paul is the CEO of Clutch Sports and one of the best friends of LeBron James. He's also, in all fairness, one of the most powerful agents in the NBA, and he's got clients such as, of course, LeBron, now Anthony Davis, John Wall, and Draymond Green. He's got a bunch of others, but those are some of the big names on his list. Anyway, the new rule that the NCAA has in place and implemented has some stipulations on agents who want to represent college players who are looking to explore their worth with NBA teams before deciding on whether or not to leave school or stay early. All right, that's that's fair, right? Um, number one, and this apparently is the one that's causing a lot of uproar, must have a bachelor's degree. Why is this causing uproar? Because Rich Paul, as I mentioned, one of the most powerful agents in the NBA, does not have a bachelor's degree. Number two, it must have been certified, the agent that is, by the NBA Players Association for at least three years. And number three, the agent must pass an in-person exam at the NCAA office in Indianapolis. Now, me personally, I see no issue with these rules. But of course, LeBron James, ever the social media maven, heard about the changes and tweeted the hashtag Rich Paul rule, which is apparently how it got that name, which we're now referring to it as. Now, I can definitely say this. LeBron is a shrewd operator and always is aware of the power of his words and his social media presence. I got it. Any discussion on the uh, new rule has already taken on the hashtag. It's basically called, in, in most parlance, the quote-unquote Rich Paul rule. It's now described as that for the most part, and that's power. So big up to you, LeBron. That being said... The rule wasn't specifically made in regards to Rich Paul, but there's an expression, and it's an old one, hit dogs holler. LeBron's follow-up tweet to the Rich Paul rule tweet was this. First, of course, he had numerous crying, laughing emojis, and then, can't stop, won't stop. They big mad and scared. Nothing will stop this movement and culture over here. 
Sorry, not sorry. Now let's unpack this. LeBron, I get it. I get it. You're the man. You live a charmed life. And it wasn't one that was handed to you. You worked for it from not great circumstances. And you've accomplished a lot, no question. And what's great about you, in all fairness, you didn't forget the people who were with you when you were on the way up. And together, you have put them in advantageous positions, and you guys have built an empire. And that's fantastic. But guess what else? Everything isn't all about you. Could it be possible? Could it be possible that the NCAA simply wants the most accredited personnel represented athletes? Most quote-unquote white-collar jobs in this country require a bachelor's degree or more as a qualification. That's not to say that there's never any success from those who don't have a bachelor's degree or in some circumstances, someone who doesn't have a bachelor's degree doesn't slip in and become successful. But most of them want a bachelor's degree as a basic qualification. Not a big thing. Now, let me take it here. I, I don't really like to talk politics or race or whatever in terms of, uh, you know, being on here or being on my social media platforms. I'm a sports guy, but I also understand how things work. I am a black man in America. I am very cognizant of history, both on a global scale and on a domestic scale. I know the effect that racism has had and continues to have on life in this country. And when I see it, I'll call it out. But anybody calling this racism is pulling a card where it doesn't need to be pulled. And what you're doing is taking away from the value of calling it out where it actually needs to be. This is ridiculous, and this is why... A lot of white people or non-black people will complain about African-Americans pulling the race card. Save it for when it's necessary. This is a situation where it's not. The fact is, as much as LeBron and his team want to think so, they are not. I repeat, not all powerful. Yes, they have power and they have influence. And maybe more than any other pro athlete employed ever by a league ever has. And that's great, LeBron. That's fantastic. Except... All this talk of so-called player empowerment is BS. Yes, I said it. It's BS. It only works for LeBron and a few of the very other top-level players in the NBA, not the vast majority of players. Now, I know in every walk of life, exceptional people get exceptions, right? No question. But in this situation, LeBron is always touting player empowerment and his impact on that, but only maybe the top 5% of those get to really benefit from it in the NBA. At the end of the day, most of the players are millionaires, right? But they're not cutting the checks. The guys cutting the checks are billionaires, and that's a big difference. I have a hard time believing that the players who are puffing their chests out right now won't be humbled at the next work stoppage to determine the parameters of a new CBA. I just can't believe it. Let's be real here. Who can last longer if it comes to that? Most owners slash governors, whatever you want to call them, have multiple revenue streams and were billionaires before they became team owners. If there's a strike, the money doesn't dry up for them. And you better believe they can hold out longer than the players can. I'm not sure LeBron has considered all of this. I would like to think he has, but I'm not sure he has. I would assume he isn't bothered because he's near the end of his playing career. But he's done a great deal, a great job, I should say, of positioning himself for success off the court. He is another guy that's en route to becoming a billionaire and having multiple revenue streams. He already has that. And it's safe to assume that most of the players in the league can't survive the way he can without basketball. But we'll see. Anyway, let's switch gears to 
number three when it comes to the NBA. Another high-profile player that some or maybe even a lot feel that when healthy is the best in the game, and that's new Brooklyn net forward Kevin Durant. So we know that there seemed to be a lot of friction between Kevin Durant and the Warriors last season. It was obvious. It was visible. The biggest was obviously the well-publicized blow-up between him and Draymond Green when Draymond called him another word for a female dog and then reminded him very loudly that the Warriors won a championship without him and if he wanted to leave, he could go. According to KD, all that's water under the bridge and he doesn't hold any ill will, but most people in the media and even those outside the media seem to think otherwise. I mean, I don't know if you talk to me like that, you know, in front of the whole world or even behind closed doors, if I could ever really let that go. I don't know. That that seems, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I could. If he says he doesn't hold any ill will, I'll take him at his word. Regardless, KD at this point, is he saying the right thing and he's taking the high road? He's downplaying any animosity towards his former team that he won two titles with. But it's hard to believe. Honestly, it's hard to believe. And so according to comments made on the herd with Colin Cowherd by NBA insider Chris Haynes, quote, there was a point where Kevin Durant just stopped talking much to his teammates. He was on an island, unquote. And that's in reference to his final season last season in Golden State. We've all heard the talk about the beef with him and Draymond. We've all heard the talk about him feeling, for lack of a better term, jealous about the fact that no matter what he did, he felt like he would never get the love from the Warriors fans and media that Steph Curry gets. He also felt, and probably rightfully, that until he won a title on a different team as the undisputed leader, he wouldn't get the respect that he's craving so much as the best ball player in the world. Now, I think people that really know basketball would probably go with the argument that he's, at this point in his NBA career, when healthy, the best player in the world. Um, when he's matched up against LeBron James, he consistently gives him buckets. And I'm not even talking about the Warriors, because if you look back throughout his career, most of the time his team's lost against LeBron, but he always got the better of the individual matchup, and I think averages like 30 in his career against him. That said, LeBron always runs and hides from that assignment, but that's a different note. Anyway, uh, logically, the gulf last season between KD and the Warriors just kept on growing, and now, well, he's about as far as he could get from them physically in this country, right? He's going from Cali to NYC, and he's now with the Nets. I mean, he's an East Coast guy to start with, so, you know, that that's cool. He's kind of back on his side of the country. And realistically, being what, from the D.C. Uh, uh, metro area, what the DMV, they call it, um, he's only, you know, a few hours from home. He hops on a private jet. He's there in like 45 minutes. He wants to take a drive. He's there in three and a half, four hours. So, you know, he's not far from home. He's got the fresh start that he wanted and a year out of the spotlight to recover physically and mentally from, you know, uh, a, a grueling taxing run over the last few years. And of course, the emotional discord that he seems to have been going through and that's been reported on. I personally don't think he's ever going to win another title. He was in the optimum situation for that to happen. Um, I don't believe that he and Kyrie will mesh properly, even though Kyrie and LeBron mesh properly, but we'll see. Apparently, they're very good friends, but I almost think it may be a bad thing in terms of him and Kyrie meshing that he's out for a year because Kyrie's going to be the man on that team. He's going to do whatever he wants, and he's going to get used to doing that. So the adjustment when KD comes back to him sliding to a 1A, uh, excuse me, a 1B, or even a number 2 is going to be interesting to watch and evaluate. So we'll see. I personally, like I said, don't think he's ever going to win another title. But 
I understand his motives for leaving and wanting a fresh start somewhere else. I gave you fair warning, beware. I gave you fair warning, beware. Before we get out of here, you know what time it is. It's time for the Bruce. Last weekend, another class went into the NFL Hall of Fame. In my opinion, the best of the Hall of Fames in American sports and the hardest to get into. If you get into that one, you are truly among the best of the best. And there's no question about it. It's hard to get in. You see guys waiting for, you know, literally decades to get into the Hall of Fame when they're they're deserving. But it's just such a logjam, especially at certain positions. But, you know, again, in my position, it is the best of the Hall of Fames. And, you know, it, it's hard. Anyway, one of the enshrinees was longtime Baltimore Ravens safety Ed Reed. Pretty soon here, I think we can safely assume that his longtime rival Pittsburgh Steelers safety Troy Polamalu will also get in. And they were the two best safeties of their era. Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor probably be the best safeties of the current era. Anyways, of course, this brought me to one of my favorite things to do in sports, and most of us, the eternal who's better debate. In my opinion, and there's probably some bias here, but I think I can back it up. In my opinion, Ed Reed is the best safety ever. But of course, some people would argue that, and that's cool. Since Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor are still playing, I won't include him into the debate. Well, Cam Chancellor just retired, but Earl Thomas is still playing, so I won't include those two into the debate. But for this breakdown, I'm going to use three of the best who ever did it. Ronnie Lott, the 49er legend, Troy Palomalu, and of course, Ed Reed. Like I said, I think Ed Reed is the best ever at his position, even though Ronnie Lott and Troy Palomalu both have more rings than he does. Now, that probably has a lot to do with the fact that both of them had consistently better QB play in their careers, with Ronnie Lott playing the bulk of his career with Joe Montana and Palomalu playing all but one season of his career with Ben Roethlisberger, both Hall of Famers. That's a significant upgrade from uh, the guy I like to call January Joe Flacco. But let's go to the numbers. So Ed Reed, over 13 seasons, played 174 games. Troy Palomalu played 158 over 12 seasons. And Ronnie Lau played 192 games over 14 seasons. Ed Reed leads the bunch with 64 interceptions. Ronnie Lott coming in second at 63 picks. And Troy Palomalu way behind with 32. Now, this is what I think is interesting. And I'll explain why in a little bit. Ed Reed has 1,590 return yards. Troy Palomalu has 398, and Ronnie Lott has 730. Ed Reed's longest is 107-yard interception return in the end zone for a touchdown. Troy Palomalu's is 49 yards, and Ronnie Lott's longest is 83 yards. Okay. Ed Reed, in this particular category, comes in last. With 11 forced fumbles, Palomalu has 14 and Ronnie Lott has 16. Ed Reed has 11 fumble recoveries of those forced fumbles. Troy Palomalu has 7. And Ronnie Lott has 16 career, uh, excuse me, 17 career fumble recoveries. Ed Reed has 6 sacks. Troy Palomalu has 12 career sacks. Ronnie Lott has 8.5. So across the board, they're all pretty even for the most part here, right? For the most part. Ed Reed has 643 career uh, tackles. Palomalu has 778 tackles, and Ronnie Lott has 1,146. 
Now, Ronnie Lott played one year longer than both of those guys. Uh, he played 14 years, uh, actually two years longer than Palomalu. Palomalu played 12, Ed Reed played 13. But um, Ronnie Lott was known for being a hitter and more of an enforcer in the run game and, and more of a tackler in the pass game. But, again, we'll get to that. Ed Reed has 34 career tackles for loss. Palomalu has 56, and Ronnie Lott played at a time when that stat wasn't recorded, so I couldn't get that. Um, Ed Reed now has nine career touchdowns. Palomalu has five, and Ronnie Lott has five. What do all these numbers I just do at you mean? For me, why I say Ed Reed is, is the best ever at the position, I look at his ability to hit and cover better than the other two. When I say hit and cover better, he clearly covers better, and he also hits. He doesn't hit better than the other two, but I mean the ability to do both is better than the other two. I look at also at his ability to turn turnovers into significant yardage gains or points. You can see um, both Palomalu and Ronnie Lott have five career touchdowns. Ed Reed has nine. That means he's got almost double the scores, right? Um, off of his career picks, he has about 1,200 more return yards than Palomalu and has double the amount of return yards as Ronnie Lott. So when Ed Reed gets his hands on the ball, not only is he likely to take it to the house, he'll also put your offense back in tremendous position uh, field-wise in uh, giving them an opportunity to score. And I think that's huge. To me, he's just more versatile as a defender. He wasn't quite the tackler the other two were, but that also has a lot to do with scheme and him not being used as much in the run defense because we know that traditionally the Ravens were great in the first and second levels of the run defense, um, whether it's the front four and then, of course, the Ray Lewis-led linebacking core. So oftentimes they didn't need Ed Reed up there to help out in, in run coverage. Also, in an era where the passing game was beginning to explode, Ed Reed was a major part in the most important part of modern NFL defense, and that's to control the air. So for me, the numbers, the production, and overall effectiveness on a defense that's been in the top three in the NFL since the year 2000 says to me that Ed Reed is simply the best safety who ever played. So that's it for me and this Bruce Breakdown, and that's it for this episode of the Format Podcast. To my returning listeners, thank you again for being here with me. I appreciate it. We're almost up to 700 listens now total on uh, 32 episodes. So I really appreciate you guys on that. Please continue to listen. Uh, keep it coming for me. Also, if you know people who are interested in sports talk and love to debate sports or whatever, um, put them onto the pod. You know, uh, let them know, you know, that if you think it's good, put them onto it. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll keep continuing to grow this thing. Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter because I, I, I love that interaction at Bruce F A Hope. That's at Bruce F A Hope. You can also uh, get me on uh, uh, Instagram at the Format Podcast at the Format Podcast. Um, you can, of course, just shoot the breeze with me because, like I said, I love the interaction. I love to talk to people, debate sports, what have you. Um, you can suggest topics for next week's show. You can tell me where you think I messed up. You can tell me if you think I made a good point, you know, all of that. So, you know, let's get to it, man. So continue to, to keep listening. If you're on an Apple uh, platform, please, please rate and review, rate and review. Give us the five stars, you know, if, if you think we're worth it. Uh, you know, we're working hard to continue to bring you this content. Um, and uh, you can listen to us 
pretty much anywhere that uh, podcasts are played. So uh, that's it for me. Thanks again. I'm out.